Well, today we're going to be considering this center, what I would call the center of the Christian faith. If the gospel is the center of Christianity, I would say that the cross is the center of the gospel. That the cross is the means by which we, as followers of Jesus, find our equilibrium. You know, the name Door of Hope comes from what I believe is an Old Testament picture uh, of the cross. It's, I will give you the Valley of Achor as a door of hope. Do you know what the Valley of Achor is? Achor was a place uh, that where sin was judged back in the book of Joshua. Uh, but it shows up again in Isaiah as a place, I will give them the Valley of Achor as a place of rest. And then again in Hosea, and I will give them the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble as a door of hope. It becomes this perfect picture of the cross, a place where sin is judged, a place where rest is secured, a place where hope is found. And for us, as door of hope, our first pillar, the pillar that everything else flows out of is that we preach Christ and him crucified. Because we believe that we can't talk about the resurrection unless we talk about his death. And we can't talk about what it means to know God unless we see what it took for God to actually make right our relationship with him because it's his work, not ours. And so this is our center because the perfect life that Jesus lived is what qualified him for the death that he died. And the central belief of the Christian, of the Christian faith is that the death that he died qualifies us today for the life that he lived. It's what we call the great exchange. And this is what the creed is declaring to us in these powerful statements that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he, was that he was crucified, that he died, was buried, and that he descended into hell. What I want us to consider today really are these three lines uh, that will give us a more robust understanding of how central the cross is in our lives as Christians. And so what I want to begin with is, is this first line, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we want to consider Jesus as the suffering servant. Look at these verses. We're going to be drawing uh, our attention to Isaiah 53, which we can actually, out of these three lines within the creed, we can find, uh, we can find them anchored actually in Isaiah, which is the, um, Isaiah the prophet and, his, and the messianic uh, passage of Isaiah 53 that points us to Jesus and what it was that he would do for us that we might be right with God. Isaiah 53, verse three, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the prophet Isaiah makes this declaration that the Messiah would be one who is marked by sorrow that he would be the son of sorrows, that he would be the son of suffering. Look at what Hebrews chapter five, verses seven and eight says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, looking back to the garden of Gethsemane, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. A lot of people are confused by that. How could the perfect sinless son of God learn obedience? But what we must remember is that Jesus emptied himself of his glory. 
by taking upon himself sinful flesh. And I want to continue to use that phrase for us to comprehend what the incarnation is about. When I say that, that the Son of God entered into sinful flesh, what I'm saying is that he played fair according to his own rules, that he entered into sinful humanity and he took our brokenness and our weakness into himself. And he did this without sinning. What we have in Jesus is not only a vision of what God is like, but we also have in Jesus a vision of what God intended man to be like. He is the second Adam. He came to restore what the first Adam was not capable of doing. He shows us what total dependence upon God looks like, what the spirit-filled life looks like. But in doing so, he became the son of sorrows. Because think of this, the son of God, the sinless son of God entering into the brokenness of the human experience, how could he not be one who is marked by continual and perpetual suffering? Now, here's the challenge for us when we think about the suffering of Jesus is that there are many things that cause suffering for us as human beings. There is moral suffering. That is the suffering that is caused by others when they wrong us or hurt us or do something damaging to us. There is physical suffering when we have a loved one who is sick. Think of, of, of something as horrible as cancer. There is, there is suffering that is caused by sin. That is our own brokenness, our own waywardness, our own autonomy, our own rebellion against God uh, and our rejection of his grace. Uh, and these things all cause suffering. But what does it mean to actually suffer as a Christian? Because I think Christians get this wrong on many levels. And when we think about what was the suffering of Jesus, the suffering that came into the life of Jesus was the suffering of his absolute and perfect obedience to the Father and taking into himself the brokenness of the world around him, his willingness to be identified with the brokenness of humanity and actually absorb into himself that brokenness without actually sinning. For us as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that there is a whole, there is a whole vision that is put forth uh, for the Christian life throughout the New Testament and that we are to actually enter into the suffering of Christ. But what does that mean? Because I believe that many Christians suffer for all the wrong reasons. The suffering that, that the New Testament talks about for us as followers of Jesus is the suffering of identification with him, with his redemptive purposes. And I believe that often we suffer due to the fact that we don't want to be identified with him. Because when we refuse to be identified with Christ, then we enter into that suffering of sin, a, re a rejection of his rule, a rejection of his grace. But the focus here is the actual suffering of Jesus himself. And I think where, as I've done all this reading, and I want to just keep it pastorally, pastoral, I think that Calvin is one that really had this wrong. He viewed this statement in the creed as a way of saying that the life of Jesus actually does not have the central significance, but the significance of Jesus's suffering is all found in the cross. But I would argue that the entire life of Jesus has saving significance. And I would also argue that Jesus's entire human existence was marked by suffering. I believe that it culminated in the cross, 
that it has its focal point in the cross, but all of it led up to that. That's why I believe that every time that Jesus healed someone, every time he cast out a demon, every time he was confronted with the brokenness of the human situation, when he looked on the crowds and he saw them, that they were like sheep without shepherds and he had compassion on them. When he stood outside of the grave of his friend who had died and he began to weep, it's because he felt deeply. It wasn't just, as I talked about last week, it wasn't just his ability to actually uh, have empathy toward others, but it is his ability to actually participate in their brokenness without ever violating his sinlessness. This is why I say that he understands our sin because he alone was able to take it all the way to its bitter end. And we'll consider that when we come to his descent into hell. So here we have the suffering servant. Here we have a God who loves us so much that he was, in, he was willing to enter into our rebellion. What Jesus entered into was the godlessness of his own creation. The creator became creature that he might restore his redemptive plan, that he might fulfill his redemptive plans for his creation. And in doing so, as Dorothy Sayers said, he played fair and took his own medicine. I think this is why as wise that it's been said that, uh, that God actually loved us more than he loved his own son in the fact that he gave up what was dearest for him that he might have us who rebelled against him. It might be an overstatement, but I think it has some profound implications in regards to our rebellion against God. Think about it. What does the scripture declare? We who were once dead in our sin and trespasses, that through Jesus, what did God accomplish? Through his entering into our suffering and making it his own, making it his own taking it all the way to death, he defeated death, tearing down the middle wall of separation that we might become what? The righteousness of God. It shows us how lost we are that God loves so outrageously. His love, it goes so far beyond what we can even begin to comprehend. And what we need to keep in mind is that the brevity of the creed always assumes that we understand that when it makes these statements about Jesus, we should just add the statement at the end of each line for us. He suffered under Pontius Pilate for us. He was crucified, died, and buried for us. He descended into hell for us. I could even make it more personal that he suffered under Pontius Pilate for you. And he did it because he cares about you. And I can't tell you why he cares about you any more than I can tell you why he cares about me. It doesn't make any sense. It's so outrageous. In my mind, it's one of the things that compels me to, that it's true. Because if I was God and I look down at the world and it's insanity right now, and we see the brokenness. Think about it, another mass shooting yesterday in a place of worship. It's outrageous. The horrors and the brutality. And what we need to remember is that the line runs through each one of us. We're not that far off from the killer. That he died for both the victim and the victimizer. And what the gospel proclaims is that Jesus is the suffering servant, but he suffered for the joy that was set before him. And you know what that joy is? It's you. It's profound. But hey, it's easy to, to preach on the suffering of Jesus, but what I love is it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, which does something really special for us. And that is, is that it, it anchors our belief in human history. 
We know for a fact that Pontius Pilate was really one who worked for the Roman government, that he really was a judge over this region at this time in the first century, that he, he is the historical anchor. It prevents us from turning the Christian faith into a set of general truths about the world. But I actually believe there's a spiritual significance for us. And why would Pontius Pilate be named in the creed? Not just simply to anchor what we believe in human history, that God entered in, that human history is God's history. It's his story and he's telling a story and it actually has a beginning and it has an end. And we know the end, it's good. We just don't know how, it, how or when it's gonna get there. Uh, but I know that the story's good. But this is profound because Pilate represents for us, uh, it doesn't say that Jesus suffered under the Jews. It says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And there's a reason for that because Pontius Pilate himself uh, is, is the judge uh, of the Son of God. And when we think about that, when we actually get our heads around that, what we see in Pilate is that he represents the rejection of Jesus Christ by his world. He is a picture of the sinfulness of human nature. He is the representative of sinful humanity in need of a savior. Think about who Pilate is. Now, I used to feel sympathy toward Pilate. I would, I would look at Pilate as one who was like, well, he saw that Jesus was innocent. He was kind of put into a hard place. Listen, being non-confrontational and not wanting to lose your job does not make you innocent. And Pilate shows us the weakness of sinful humanity, the love of position, the love of power over the love of what is right, of what is true. One of the most profound verses in the Bible is the words in which Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? In John, the Gospel of John. And you know what's really fascinating about that story and that interaction between Jesus and Pilate is that Pilate doesn't stick around for the answer. He asks Jesus the question and then turns around and walks away. So much like our world today. We don't even wanna know what truth is anymore. Pilate is the representative. If Jesus is the one for the many and the many and the one, he becomes the representative of a new humanity. Pilate is the representative of sinful humanity. Think about these words of Pilate. In John chapter 19, verses one through five, it says, and Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. He knew he was innocent and it, he still had him flogged almost to the point of death. That Pilate's soldiers that worked under him, Pilate allowed them to twist together a crown of thorns and put it on the, on the head of Jesus and array him in a purple robe and mock him, saying, hail the king of Jews, while they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing out to you that you, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. If Pilate found no guilt in him, why would he ever allow those things to happen to him? He thought he was saving his life when in actuality, his hands were covered with blood just like all of our hands. He represents you and I and our part in the death of, this, of God. Pilate said to them something very profound. He said, Behold the man. You know what's interesting is that when, when our first parents fell in the New King James, uh, it actually says, uh, it says that God speaking over Adam in a fallen state, behold, the man has become like one of us. Saying basically, Adam has, and, and, and Eve, 
who make up the image of God have chosen to be for themselves their own gods. They have taken autonomy into themselves. And so God says of, of Adam and Eve, behold the man, look at man as I never intended them to be, broken in relationship for me. And now Pilate, the sinful man, the representative of sinful humanity says of God, behold the man. And what he didn't even realize is that he actually is saying the right thing. Behold man as God intended man to be. Behold God, a vision of what God is like, a God who, whose glory is revealed through his suffering. It's profound. It was Pilate who brought Jesus down and sat down on the judgment seat. I never noticed that, that, that specific statement and the power of that statement in John chapter 19 because you have what of Jesus? That Jesus is, as it says in the creed, that he will come back to do what? To judge the living and the dead. And yet here you have sinful man judging God. He sits down in the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement. And now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So we have here Jesus suffering, the suffering servant, suffering under the broken sinfulness of humanity, Pontius Pilate being the representative of sinful humanity, showing all of our part in the death of the Son of God. Profound. I know you want some jokes right now, something to lighten the mood, uh, uh, you know, a, a commercial break. I have nothing for you. Okay, move on. <laughs> so he's a suffering servant. If I could borrow from Frederick Buechner, uh, one of my favorite books by him, it's called The Magnificent Defeat, which I think plays on the paradox of what happened in the cross. Here we have the magnificent defeat. Under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died, and was buried. And look at, once again, at Isaiah 53, 5, because we often think of the death of Jesus, uh, the crucifixion, the physical realities of it. This is why, why I don't like the passion of the Christ, uh, because it gives us the physical realities of torture and suffering. Uh, but there's nothing unique about the fact that Jesus was tortured and suffered. What made it unique was who was suffering and who was tortured and what was going on behind what can be seen. Because we forget that there is a physical reality and there is a spiritual reality, that there are powers and principalities of darkness at play behind, and that God is actually working out redemption for mankind through the death of this historical man, Jesus. And here we have the magnificent defeat. And Isaiah 53 verse 5 gives us a glimpse into the spiritual reality of what is being worked out. But he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What this declares is something profound, and that is the double sense that is found in the cross. The son's death was both our fault and our benefit. <laughs> and I think that... We need to lock that down into our hearts because we can focus so much on what Jesus accomplished for us that we can forget that our godlessness is what put him there. 
And we need to understand our responsibility. We will not come to, the, to recognize our need for a savior if we don't think that there's anything that we need to be saved from. I think of one of the most horrifying things I've read uh, in, in interviews uh, with uh, our current president, and this is not a political statement, it's a theological statement. He was asked once uh, before his election if he had ever asked God for forgiveness and his statement, because he was claiming that he's a Christian. And his statement, and I would say this about anyone that said this, has nothing to do with our president. I just think it's interesting because he's such a public figure. When he was asked if he'd ever asked God for forgiveness, he stopped and reflected and he said, no, no, I don't think I have. No, nope, I've never asked for forgiveness. Well, I'm sorry, sir, you're not a Christian. Because the essence of the Christian life is that we have been forgiven by the blood of the lamb that you can't save yourself because you think you're good or you think you're awesome. No, we are forgiven because we recognize that we have rebelled against God, that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, that he was pierced and crushed for our iniquities, that by his wounds we are healed and there is no other way. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And specifically, it's through the cross. We have violated the law of God. And let me just tell you, I say that there is not much difference, once again, between the godlessness of a statement like what our president gave or what we find in our own hearts. And this is why we all need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We have all crossed the threshold of what is okay. We have all entered into the rebellion against God. We all deserve eternal separation from him, which is what death is. And yet, God in his love and his mercy took what we deserve into himself. This is why we should once again read these words. For us, he was crucified, died, and buried crushed for our iniquities. Look what it says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I want us to think of that. What does it mean to be a curse? It means that he was forsaken. And, and what does it mean to be forsaken? Because what did Jesus say upon the cross of Calvary? Quoting from Psalm 22, and believe me, I don't think that Jesus in the middle of torment was like, let me show you my memorization skills of the Psalms. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was total identification with those words. Those words were prophetic words to what the Messiah would experience upon the cross of Calvary. And here is what is fascinating. What does it mean to be forsaken? Think about what it means. To be forsaken means to be abandoned, to be given up, to withdraw companionship, protection, or the support from somebody, to give up, to renounce, or sacrifice something that gives pleasure. So think about it. To be forsaken goes from both sides, from the experience of the son, that he has lost companionship with the father, that there is something that has caused separation. And we cannot get our heads around that. We don't know what it means that the one God who is revealed to us in three persons, whose oneness is the outflow of, his, of the singular vision, goal, and, and, and and redemptive purposes found between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how could there be a rift in the Godhead if our God is one? But there was a relational rift, some kind of separation, uh, which is the very essence of hell, by the way, is that, separate, that hell itself, we're told in 1 Thessalonians, is that God will put them out of 
outside of his presence. But that word presence in the Greek means relational presence. We need to remember there is no place that God is not, including hell. If I make my bed in hell or death or Sheol, you are there, O God. Hell is not the removal of God, it's the removal of relationship with God. And Jesus, in that moment, experienced the withdrawal of companionship, and the Father experienced the horror of giving up that which gives him pleasure, which is his Son. That's why I always say it's important for us to remember that the entire Godhead was involved in the atonement that took place in the redemption for humanity. Contrast these words, though. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me with Jesus' own words the night of his betrayal? Do you guys remember what he said in John? I always thought this was fascinating. In John chapter 16, verse 32, he says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. He's telling the, the disciples, you will not be able to identify with my suffering. In fact, you will abandon me, which should give us all hope for when we have those moments of weakness where we deny our Lord. And I know that we can, once again, the line runs through all of us. But he says, all of you are gonna abandon me. All of you are gonna deny me, but I am not alone for the Father is with me. It's as if Jesus, the God-man who emptied himself, actually had no foresight into the fact that he would be abandoned by the Father. I, I don't know how to explain that verse other than on the cross, the Father seemed to not be with him. At least that was his experience. And yet he, he couldn't even see that coming. <laughs> it's profound. I, 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 I think that, that when we think about what it cost God to bring redemption for us, uh, he who knew no sin is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that, we, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what did David say in Psalm 37? For I have yet to see a righteous man forsaken. Well, he'd never seen a righteous man. And the only righteous man who ever lived is the only one who's ever truly been forsaken, and that's Jesus. He was forsaken so that we could be found. He was abandoned so that we, we who were lost and dead could be found. This is why Bonhoeffer once wrote from prison, only a suffering God can help. What this meant is that he went so low that he could get under the lowest sinners and lift them to undreamed of heights what suffering he must have experienced to get under our sin. I think it's important to notice that it says not only was he crucified, and on the cross, not only did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also said, it is finished, which means that the work that he was sent to do was accomplished, the mysterious, redemptive work that Jesus came to work out, that taking into himself, he who knew no sin became sin, took our sin into himself and took the judgment that we deserve. That's why I always like to refer to Jesus as both the judge and the judged in our place. We should have been on that cross, but Jesus was on that cross in our place. But it says that he died. In fact, the words that he spoke, uh, the last words that he spoke after it is finished is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says that he breathed his last and what we need to remember is that what death is. What is death? How do you define what death is? Because we are told that death in Scripture is always separation. And it's separation really uh, in, in, in two primary ways. First of all, it is separation from relationship. 
relationship specifically with God, but not only relationship with God, it's separation and relationship with one another. It is because we are dead in our sins and trespasses that we not only cannot relate to God in the right way, but it makes it impossible for us to relate to one another in the right way. And even ultimately, it gives us the inability to even understand ourselves. This is why I always say that the, rest, that the gospel brings restoration to relationship in three directions, to God, to others, and then and only then to ourselves. And does this not speak of the truth that death, that people are walking dead? Because look at the ways that people are isolated from God and one another, and even the despair that they feel in their inability to comprehend who they are. That's what we see all around us today. And this is what Jesus, the death that he entered into, was that literal kind of death. This is why he said, why have you forsaken me? He experienced for us that fullness of death, the separation of, of, of relationship between the, human, between the human spirit and God. And this is why I, I am comfortable saying that Jesus not only entered into the hell that we create on earth, but on the cross, I believe that he experienced the hell of separation. Not in an eternal sense, but he experienced it in its fullness. It's just that he is life and it could not keep him. He is victorious over it. But death is separation from God. This is exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 12 through 14 says. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We who were once dead in our sins and trespasses, separated from right relationship with God, Jesus took that death into himself and he died and was buried. Which tells us that separation is not just simply separation of relationship, but it is also separation of soul from body. And Jesus said, to the thief on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. There was a separation of body. And what happened to his body? It was buried for three days before his resurrection, which brings me to the last slide. Because the magnificent defeat, what seems like the absolute defeat, becomes the victorious descent. And I just want you to see, there's a lot of controversy around the statement, he descended into hell. And I think probably a better way of translating that, that the, this ancient statement is that he descended into death. And it's not redundancy. It's not simply saying what it's already said, that he died and was buried, for all of us die. So the first thing that we can say that the creed is saying is that Jesus died just like all humans die. But the descent into hell and where it comes in the creed, I believe, is a statement of victory, not defeat. Because Jesus didn't die in the same way that we all will die, because none of us had the ability to conquer death. And Jesus, through death, conquered death, sin, and the dominions of darkness. He conquered fully and finally the separation that is the outcome of sin. And this is why I believe this is in the creed. So we can say that he entered into death. Uh, he 
conquered death. He descended into it in its fullest extent, bringing about total victory. Jesus experienced human death as all humans do. His body buried and his soul departed to the Father. And in so doing, by virtue of his divinity, he defeated both death and the grave. We all die, but none of us defeated death. And in fact, what we believe as Christians, because he defeated death, that death for us as followers of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. It's a victorious descent. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's victorious of death, which means for you and I, we don't have to be afraid of death. And it, we're, we're afraid of the unknown factor of it. And believe me, I can sit around and speculate with all of you, what is the scripture trying to say? What happened to the spirit of Jesus um, between, between his death and his resurrection? And there's all sorts of speculation. And I don't wanna overly speculate about what is stated in the descent into hell because I think kind of a postmodern tendency is to like, well, I don't like what the early church meant by that statement, but we'll just repurpose it for our own purposes. The purpose of stating the creed is that we are falling into the tradition of what the church has held. And the primary thing that the church is declaring in this creed, and it's true that there's been abuses of this statement, everything from Jesus descended into hell and has made salvation possible for all people, uh, kind of preaching some sort of universalism. There's been those who have said that Jesus descended into hell in the, in the sense that the three days between his death and resurrection, that he experienced the torment of hell and the, and the wrath of God and the fire of God. There's been those that, like Calvin, had tried to say that it's just a restatement of what he experienced on the cross. I don't believe that it's any of that. I believe that the creed means and, is pla- and the statement is placed where it's placed, which is that he descended into death in the fullest sense of the word, bringing about victory over it. This is a victorious statement. This is exactly what we have even in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him up a a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a statement of victory over death. What human being can say that? That not only does he taste death, taste death in its fullness, but he does it for you and I. And there's spoils that come out of it. It's powerful. What are we told? What's what's Jesus fulfilling? That he would set the what? Captives, what? Free. And if we were all dead in our sins and trespasses, that means that that we create hell for ourselves on earth. And it means that we were all headed to a final separation from God for all of eternity. But Jesus, through his redemptive work, has set captives free. You and I are liberated by the work of Jesus. This is his descent into hell. Ephesians chapter four, verses eight to 10. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And when he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, which I believe is speaking not so much of him entering into some under, you know, some sort of Greco-Roman vision of an underworld, but I believe it's speaking specifically of his entrance into his creation, the incarnation itself. That he descended in the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So here we have the total victory of the Son. 
that he has taken our nature to himself, that he allows our fallen nature to drag him down. He descends to the very abyss of the human condition. He traces our plight right back to the root and takes hold of us there. He embraces our humanity at the point of its total collapse into non-being. Such a beautiful statement from Ben Myers on this phrase, the descent into hell. What we need to know is that Jesus' descent into hell is his total victory, not only of death over death, but also over the dominions of darkness, over the devil himself, that there's a whole spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes. And we need to know that Jesus is victor over death in all of its facets, including his, his victory over the powers themselves. This is why Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus bound the strong man, the strong man being the devil and his forces. And how did he do that? Through his victorious death. And this is why Jesus, we can say, why we can trust him with our own life, with our own mortality, because Revelations chapter one, verses 17 through 18 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. His descent into hell means his total victory over death and the dominions of darkness and he alone as the resurrected king holds the keys to death in Hades. I can trust him with my life. And if I can trust him with my life, then I can trust him in my suffering. And if I can trust him in my suffering, then I want to suffer for the right reasons. And so I just end with this thought, that today we might be tempted by the allure of a gospel that promises worldly satisfactions and success. But what we need to understand is that our victory is our identification with the suffering of Jesus who lays on us not a crown but a cross. We will share in Christ's glory only to the extent that we share in his sufferings. And this is why Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Amen?